This is the Uncommon Wisdom Podcast, a podcast companion to the Substack newsletter, Uncommon Wisdom, that helps listeners uncover unusual wisdom through conversations and interviews with some of the most interesting people around. Please like, share, and subscribe. It's free with new content every week. Enjoy the show. I am joined today by Dr. Evan Westra. Evan works in philosophy of mind, philosophy of cognitive science, and moral psychology. Evan, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. So I wanted to get started with your background. Um, for folks who don't know, we were graduate students in the same department back a few years ago. Um, I'm curious, what sparked your interest in philosophy? It's a fairly uh, unusual vocation. And why become a professional philosopher of all things? Sure. So... I think I ended up in philosophy because it seemed like the best discipline uh, for articulating the kinds of questions that I found interesting. So before I you know, majored in philosophy in college, I kind of tried a lot of things and I was really drawn to literature and especially literature that seemed to get at something that was like deep and profound about human nature. You know, books like The Stranger, Crime and Punishment, and Heart of Darkness. And so initially in university, I took a lot of literature courses. Uh, but gradually I started to realize that uh, what I really enjoyed discussing was not really the literature itself or the author's interpretations or anything like that, but just getting to that deeper philosophical takeaway. And um, so I started to realize that maybe, you know, literary criticism wasn't the right thing for me. And I needed to find some kind of, uh, some kind of, academic discipline that would really get to the thing that I actually enjoyed. Anyway, so around that time, um, I was at a bookstore and I picked up a book by Daniel Dennett um, called Freedom Evolves. And so this is a book about the free will problem and uh, Dennett's sort of somewhat convoluted uh, solution to it. And uh, it's funny because in retrospect, uh, this wasn't even Daniel Dennett's best book on free will, let alone his best book. Uh, but um, something about the magnitude of the problem of free will, which was totally new to me. And also the sheer fact that it was the first book that I read where that really just got to these, these kinds of issues that I was interested in, uh, led me to start taking philosophy courses. And then I took more philosophy courses and more. And next thing you know, I was in grad school. Um, and so I don't really know if there was a point where I decided this is what I was going to do so much as, I was interested in it and I just kept following my interests and this is what happened. But uh, one thing I've learned along the way is that being a professional philosopher is really hard. It's a really competitive field. Uh, there are lots of really smart people who suffer a lot trying to be a part of it. Uh, but it's also kind of addictive. You know, there's this feeling of engaging with big questions and coming up with arguments and objections and alighting upon new insights that's just really satisfying. It just feels good to do philosophy. It's like you're, you're mainlining truths straight from the realm of the forms. Uh, and so philosophy is a way for you to get a bit of a fix. Uh, and I mean, so don't get me wrong, it can be a source of like genuine meaning in your life. Um, and when you do philosophy, you can make real contributions to society. But I think on an individual psychological level, uh, I'm not sure, always sure that it's actually people do it for the healthiest reason. It's like, it's sort of, uh, we do it because it feels good. 
Yeah, um, that's that's an interesting way to put it. Uh, it is uh, crazy difficult to get a good job in philosophy. Um, and so involved in your um, your journey to become a philosopher, whether unwittingly or, or intentional, um, I'm sure you face a lot of decisions. And I know you work in some areas where you sort of focus on like the best ways to make decisions. Um, I know there's at least some evidence or some research to suggest that perhaps at least in some cases using your gut to make decisions is a better way than say like making a pro con list. Like, so if you're, um, you know, you're looking to start a new job or buy a house, get married, have children. Um, and what, how might using your feelings um, rather than focusing on the pros and cons of the details, like might that be a good way to, to make decisions or am I missing something? What do you think of it? Well, I think it depends on the kind of decision you're making and what sort of constraints constraints that you're under. Uh, so some of our best tools for making those sorts of detail-oriented uh, decisions that sort of explicit deliberation, stuff like um, inner speech, saying things out to yourself or uh, using uh, imagination, um, those are all based in, uh, in a uh, cognitive faculty called working memory. But the thing about working memory is that it's a limited resource. There's only so much information that a person can keep in it at one time. So when you're making a decision that requires you to hold many, many different facts in your head all at once, uh, your working memory can get overloaded. And meanwhile, decision-making guided by feelings uh, or affect, as psychologists call it, can actually be much more efficient under the conditions where working memory fails us. So here's an example from a study uh, from the journal Emotion by uh, psychologist uh, John uh, Joseph Michaels from DePaul University. Uh, say that you're looking to buy a new car. And so the car salesman takes you on a lot and shows you a whole bunch of different cars. And uh, what you're looking to do is you're looking to sort of choose the car that's best on a couple dimensions, uh, maybe gas mileage, price, and safety. And so in this case, um, your working memory is actually going to be able to uh, handle the task because you're only dealing with a couple bits of information per car. Uh, you can remember every car you've seen and all the relevant facts about each one of them. And then you can kind of deliberate on your decision based on, on what you've learned. But now imagine you're trying to make the same decision, except that you're basing your decision on 12 different factors instead of three or four. So you're making a much more complicated decision uh, and you're seeing lots of different car. And in that case, there's really no viable way for you to keep all that information in mind at once, even if you try. Uh, but the funny thing is, is that instead of going with your gut, uh, and trying to, or sorry, instead of um, trying to keep track of all those details, you can just go with your gut and you can just choose the car that feels best. You're actually going to be more likely to choose the car that really is better on those 12 dimensions. And that's because every time that you learn something positive about a car, your brain, or about anything, your brain is going to click a little effective like button. And as those likes add up, uh, whenever you think about that car, it's just gonna to start to feel better and better. And that stored up affective information can then efficiently guide your gut decision-making in complex environments, uh, even more than, you, uh, in even especially when your deliberative faculties can fall short. And so um, really feelings or affect can be this efficient way to keep track of value in the environment. 
And this is probably our most basic form of decision-making, something that we share with a lot of other non-human animals. Uh, one thing I will say though, is that the downside of this effective decision-making strategy is that it can get distorted in lots of ways. So for instance, if you're shopping for cars, but you happen to experience positive affect for some unrelated reason, like maybe you smell, uh, smell freshly baked cookies or something, or maybe you just uh, stepped in something gross, uh, that, that can lead you to misattribute that affect, that incidental affect to the object that you're attending to. And that's gonna lead you to treat it as better or worse than it actually is. Um, expectations about how good of an experience will be can also lead you to experience it as more positive than it really is. And so this is why we tend to think that uh, expensive wine tastes better than cheap wine, even when they might be indistinguishable from each other based on the label. So affect is this efficient tool for decision-making, but it can also be easily tricked. Well, when it comes to decision-making, since we're on decision-making, um, it seems like um, when, when people think about decisions they're going to make in the future, they can often get things wrong, right? So you might be like on OkCupid or some sort of dating service and you go on a date with someone and like she's just beautiful and you're like, oh, I can, I can totally see my, myself with this person for the rest of my life, right? Or you go on a job interview and you really hit it off with the person interviewing you and you really like the job description and you just sort of imagine that like this, this date or this job are going to be great and then you get them and like, hate it. Like you hate the job or like you're just not a good fit with this person. Um, so I guess my question to you would be, um, are people bad at making uh, or knowing what they'll want in the future? And, and does that complicate decision making? Well, I think that people can be bad at anticipating about how some events in the future will feel. Uh, this is what uh, psychologist Dan Gilbert calls affective forecasting. Uh, so we know, for instance, that uh, people who win the lottery don't end up being that much happier than, uh, than anybody else. And that people who might lose a limb or become paralyzed after an accident actually turn out to be just about as happy as, uh, as someone who that doesn't happen to. And so this is puzzling, right? Like why, uh, like we obviously, we could judge that it would be bad uh, good or bad to go through those experiences that winning the lottery would feel good and uh, having an accident and um, losing a limb would feel bad. But what we do is we tend to sort of, we're not very good at understand, uh, judging how good or bad it will be and for how long it'll last. So we tend to think that um, good things are gonna feel really good and bad things are gonna feel really bad. And then we just have a hard uh, time taking into account the fact that whatever does happen to you, eventually it's going to seem normal. We're going to adapt to it. So say that you're thinking about what it would be like to lose your job and being forced to change careers. Uh, obviously, that will be painful. But as soon as it happens, we're going to start rationalizing to ourselves why it's really a good thing. Maybe you didn't like that job anyway. Maybe the new career has things about it that you, uh, that you like. Uh, maybe you pay attention to that. And so ultimately, when bad things happen, our psychological immune system is going to kick in and help us to cope with it. But that's something that we don't really expect uh, when we're looking, at, uh, looking towards the future, when we're uh, doing effective forecasting. In terms of how this affects decision-making, I, I guess it's going to tend to make us 
uh, more risk averse, uh, especially for changes that seem like they're going to be painful in the short run. Um, and it might also lead us to place too much value on achieving goals that might turn out to not get uh, make us really happy, you know, like getting a promotion or, uh, you know, uh, or whatever. And I guess you could say that these biases in effective forecasting are going to make us kind of more cowardly and also kind of a little bit more vain because they're not going to make uh, because we're going to be afraid of doing things that are really good for us in the long run. And we're going to, uh, and we're going to mistakenly believe that things that aren't that great are much better than they are. So you talked a little bit about what you called our psychological immune system. And I'm wondering if on the basis of what you said, um, it would sort of make sense to in, at least whenever possible try and cultivate optimism. So I'm wondering if in the background, the lesson here is like, whenever you're facing large decisions or whenever life throws a curveball at you, um, if maybe the best option is to, is to sort of frame it in positive terms, even if that's not necessarily accurate, but maybe as a way to cope. Do you think that's right or am I missing something? Well, I think that if, I don't know if that's the best way to make decisions, but I think that often you're going to find yourself in a position where like you're going to get a set of choices thrust upon you that are going to be very difficult. And whatever choice you've made, I think that it is healthy to construe it in optimistic terms and to try to frame it going, uh, going uh, positively going forward. And that actually most of us kind of have a tendency to do that, to do this most of the time, to sort of look for the silver lining. And, uh, and I think that it, that is a good thing. Uh, once you're in the city, once you find yourself in a situation and you can't do anything about it, I don't know if it necessarily follows that in decision making you should be overly optimistic about how good thing, uh, good or bad things are, um, but maybe you just shouldn't be overly pessimistic about how bad things will, uh, will feel. Um, things that we're really scared of might turn out to be less bad, uh, less bad. But I don't think that things that we think of as being good are going to turn out to be even better than we thought. So I've, like I said before, we were um, graduate students in the same department, and I know you work in this area called um, mind reading. So I'm wondering what that is. Like, are you reading my mind right now? Or like, how does that work? So unfortunately, what I work on is much more boring than telepathy or ESP. Uh, sometimes I get a random email from someone who uh, who thinks that I actually work on telepathy and ESP and I'm forced to disappoint them. Um, but no, what I work on, mind reading is a term that psychologists and philosophers use to refer to our ability to, what's, uh, to reason about what's going on in other people's heads. So this is how we make inferences about a person's beliefs or desires or intentions or emotions. Um, it's kind of related to the common sense notion of empathy. And so um, mind reading, the, the mind reading, the skill, this kind of empathy is really important for our day-to-day -day social interactions because it's one of our primary tools for interpreting and predicting what other people are gonna do. 
So a basic challenge that all of us face in everyday social life is to make sense of why people are acting the way that they are and to plan our own actions accordingly. And mind reading, thinking about what's going on in people's heads is our primary way for doing that. So here's a really simple example. Say that someone says to you, hey, nice shirt, but they say it in a deadpan voice. And so then there's these two different interpretations of what this person said. Maybe they're trying to compliment you or, um, or maybe they're being sarcastic and they're point, poking fun at you. So you have this one behavior and two possible interpret, underlying interpretations, either a sort of positive friendly intention or a negative sarcastic one. And so how you react appropriately in that situation is going to depend on a judgment that you make about which of these two intentions you think is driving that person's behavior. So if you come to the conclusion that the comment is sincere, maybe you just say thanks and remember that this person was nice to you. But if the comment was sarcastic, maybe you ignore it or respond to it with a, a barb of your own. And so these make for very different interactions and they depend crucially on our psychological interpretations of other people's behavior. Here's one more case. Uh, say you wake up one morning and your romantic partner is acting unusually. Maybe normally they're very talkative, they make you a cup of coffee, but today they're being very quiet and there's no coffee waiting for you. And so maybe you ask them what's wrong and they say, no, I'm fine, or they don't say anything. And so you start wondering what's causing them to act unusually. Are they angry with you? Maybe they're angry about something else. Maybe they're just tired. Uh, does it have something to do with something that's happened recently? Are they worried about something that's going to happen? And so this kind of reasoning is really important to how we navigate difficulties in our interpersonal relationships. And it's all about our ability to grasp what other people are thinking and feeling. And so this is something that I think that we can get better at with experience and that we might actually get better at with particular people. Um, and ultimately, it's something that we're using all the time whenever we're interacting with one another. So just a quick follow-up question in the mind reading um, area. Um, I'm curious if you could say just a, a little bit, um, without getting into too much detail, about how we mind read. So you might think something like um, maybe putting yourself in someone else's shoes. like. The example you gave of the romantic partner, um, maybe he or she is upset about something or upset with me. It looks like maybe what you're doing there is like, if I was acting that way, what would be going wrong with me? Or maybe you just have a set of like beliefs about what this person does or why they do what they do. Like, can you just say a little bit about like how we mind read? Yeah, sure. So, um, so what you've kind of described are, so the two basic theories of how mind reading works. One of them is called the simulation theory. It's the idea that, as you said, um, in order to figure out what people are thinking or, or predict what people are gonna do, we put themselves in our shoes. We, think, we use our own minds as a kind of model for understanding someone else's mind. So what would I do in their situation? And this is actually, you can see why this would be a pretty good strategy in some cases because uh, you know your mind roughly works in the same way as someone else's you know you have the same general kinds of decision making 
mechanisms. And so you can kind of exploit that structure, that similarity in order to, um, in order to better understand what they're like. And then the other uh, perspective, the idea that, uh, that you just use a bunch of beliefs about what people are like rather than simulating them is called the theory theory. And so this is sometimes the idea that you have is sometimes called uh, having a uh, naive psychology or a folk psychology. The idea that you just have a basic intuitive theory of what people are like, of what kind of beliefs and desires uh, people generally have and form in different situations. And then you just draw on that body of knowledge to interpret other people, just like you might draw on a body of knowledge to understand uh, what's going on in the biological world or in the physical world. And I think that the consensus is that to a certain degree, both of these processes are involved. And, um, they can be involved in kind of different ways. So um, one thing that I think we do in a lot of uh, day-to-day -day situations is we have um, shortcuts, heuristics for, uh, for judging what's going on in people's minds. You know, whether that's like using facial expressions or using knowledge of certain situations, like maybe we know that uh, if a waiter gets a, sm a small tip, they're going to be mad, you know, and those can be a kind of sort of crude theory that we can deploy really, really quickly without having to do any sort of sim uh, simulating. On the other hand, maybe uh, when you are, uh, when you're faced with a more complex mind reading problem, like the case that I described with your romantic partner, well, then what you might do is, because you don't have any explicit knowledge about what's going on, then maybe you start to engage in simulation uh, as a tool for trying to come up with an answer, to sort of generate possibilities. And, uh, and, so, that I, and so ultimately, I think that, there, uh, that both kinds of processes are going to be involved, and they're going to be involved in different, ki uh, different kinds of situations, uh, depending on how hard the mind reading problem is, and also depending on sort of how much you care about it. So maybe if there's a person, maybe if you're interacting with someone who you really care about, you're going to start to draw on that sort of simulation-based procedure in order to really understand what things feel like for them. But if, on the other hand, you're just dealing with someone in a relatively casual context, but you don't really, you don't really want to make a huge effort to understand what's going on in their heads. Maybe then you'll use some simpler, kind of more heuristic-based, uh, theory-like processes. So, speaking of what other people are like, um, in a recent paper you published, 2019, you write, "quote Prominent social psychologists and philosophers have encouraged us to mistrust our ordinary character judgments." but this has never been consistent with our everyday experiences. We are not, for instance, constantly shocked by the behavior of our friends and family. Cases where people turn out to be very different people than their friends and family believe them to be are the exception, not the rule. Such a fact is so mundane that we become habituated to it and eventually forget about it altogether." End quote. Am I missing something, Evan? Or another way to put this would be, how could psychologists and philosophers get this so wrong? Sure. So, uh, so that quote comes at the end of a paper where 
I basically start start by pointing out that uh, in a lot of psychology and a lot of philosophy, you uh, you see a lot of emphasis on research, psychological research showing that we're prone to make a lot of uh, snap judgments about people, uh, what people are like, and that our first impressions of one another can be really prone to all kinds of stereotypes and biases. And uh, philosophers and psychologists have kind of taken this sort of propensity to make these snap judgments as evidence that our beliefs about other people and what they're like and beliefs about their character traits are not really trustworthy and that we're generally not very good at knowing other people. Um, and so part of the reason that there's, there's lots of evidence for this kind of research on first impressions is because they're actually pretty easy to study. So if you present a participant, uh, like a study participant, with a person for the first time, along with some minimal pieces of information about that person that you're interested in manipulating, maybe it's their facial appearance, maybe it's something about their social identity or whatever, and then you ask them to make a social judgment about, oh, form a social, uh, a first impression of this person. Uh, well, that's gonna be a kind of low information social judgment by design. And when you're making a judgment about a person and you only have a small bit of information, you only know what they look like, you only know about their race, uh, you only know about their gender, uh, maybe you've only seen them uh, engaged in a certain behavior, that is the only information that you have to make that judgment. And so, of course, that information is going to influence how you see them. And then, boom, you have evidence bias. But I think that studying uh, those kinds of biases in isolation in these low information conditions is not the same as looking at how we update our judgments about people once we have information and how we make judgments about people that we have learned about, that we come to know very well. And so when we look at evidence from those contexts, like I do in the paper that you're quoting from, what we find is that the more intimately acquainted we are with a person, the more evidence we have about their character and the more sort of accurate and reliable our judgments about them become. And this isn't to say that we're unaffected by biases or that this work on, uh, on first impressions uh, isn't getting at something real but rather that those biases aren't the whole story. And that if you just focus on studying those because it's easy to study, that can actually lead to a very distorted picture of how we understand one another. And so this fits in with a bit of a broader point about how social psychologists and the philosophers who read them have been studying human rationality for a few decades now. And it's that, look, people often make mistakes in their reasoning. And this is kind of interesting to us because it shows that we're not as smart as we think that we are. And so it takes us down a peg. And maybe it even it looks like it could suggest a way for us to improve ourselves and how we could get better. And so philosophers eat this stuff up because it seems to have a lot of uh, implications for common sense. And, you know, philosophers, in the back of our minds, we're always worried about the problem of skepticism that uh, the world might be vastly different than it appears to us. And so this kind of research really fits in with that worry. But here's the thing, it's only part of the story. Whereas 
uh, a paper about how we make all kinds of surprising errors and are prone to all these biases is very interesting. A paper about how common sense behaves exactly as we might expect it to would be pretty boring. And so focusing on errors is just more exciting and interesting than focusing on accuracy. But if we want to understand the scope and the limitations of human rationality, we need the whole picture, not just the exciting parts. And it might just be that uh, in some cases, uh, skepticism is the, wrong, is the wrong take, and that some things are actually pretty close to the way they seem, and that the world is just a bit more boring than uh, the, the headlines would have us believe. At a related point, you write in a paper from 2017, quote, if we know someone well, we are often able to infer what she is thinking quite accurately. But just as often, we interact with complete strangers about whom we know nothing. In these cases, we may instead fall back on stereotypes about the target's social group membership. And this is the point where pernicious social biases can enter into the mind reading process distorting our interpretations of the social world, end quote. So here's my question to you. Given how important cooperation is for our species, we are a very cooperative species. We cooperate with strangers on all sorts of projects. You find cooperation in the natural world with like beavers and bees and whatnot, but they usually cooperate on very specific tasks and usually with like relatives, like siblings or cousins or mates. So given the importance of social interaction and given that this seems to be a pretty like hardwired or embedded feature of our psychology, like what gives? Is there like some advantage to this? Is it like a fluke? Like what's the story, Evan? Well, so the paper that you're quoting from uh, is, was about how stereotypes can influence mind reading and how our, uh, and how our intuitive judgments of a person based on their race, based on their gender, based on their age, can influence the kind, the way that we interpret what they're doing. And I think that this is, what this really amounts to, for me, is a kind of heuristic for mind reading in low information conditions, when we're interacting with someone who we're unfamiliar and so you describe, you were talking about cooperation. Well, I think a lot of cooperation does happen within these sort of more restricted social groups within, uh, within our sort of more proximal social network. Um, and so those are the kinds of people uh, for whom we're going to form the most accurate and most detailed uh, knowledge about their character. And we're going to be more reliable in uh, reading their minds and predicting and interpreting their behavior. But when you sort of move out to the boundaries of our social network and start interacting with strangers, then you just have a lot less information about them. And so you find yourself in the kinds of low information conditions that are studied in the uh, kinds of experiments that I was mentioning a second ago. And so in those contexts, I think that stereotypes form, can serve as a kind of heuristic uh, for making a quick judgment about what a person might be like when we don't have that much else to go on. Um, and, those, and those heuristics uh, might 
reflect all kinds of distorted ways that people are portrayed in the media or might reflect the fact that they belong to uh, a social group that we're in conflict with. Um, or maybe it just reflects sort of uh, real differences that are the products of real uh, structural inequalities brought on by different kinds of social injustice. And so all those factors can shape the way that we mind read and the way that we interact with people uh, with whom we are not familiar. But as I mentioned, I do think that we have the ability to overcome these biases, um, but that requires the right kinds of experience with the person to learn about them uh, over repeated interactions, and also the, the motivation to learn about them. And so if we don't have access to evidence about what a person is really like, uh, or if we don't care enough to seek that evidence out, then yeah, our judgments about them uh, are going to be as reliable as our stereotypes are. And I think that we only really have access to that evidence and uh, have those kinds of motivations in contexts where we're trying to cooperate with one another. And so I think that the kind of cooperation that you're talking about is a sort of precondition for developing more accurate, uh, more accurate social judgments. And that when that cooperation is absent, uh, we have neither the information nor the inclination to learn what people really like. So perhaps another way to um, express the point would be something like, um, in the back of my mind, it seems that oftentimes we rely on heuristics because they are the best of both worlds. So sometimes when you're making a decision, you could spend a lot of time trying to figure it out and you might get a lot of reliability or accuracy, but it wouldn't be very efficient. Or on the other hand, um, you might go for like efficiency, something like really quick, but it might not be very accurate or not accurate enough. So heuristics can be a way of being like quick and dirty and getting enough efficiency and accuracy. And I'm wondering if this, um, what you just said about our sort of snap judgments about people relying on stereotypes, if that just shows that some heuristics actually aren't, they're quick and dirty, but they're actually not that good. Or if another way of reading that would be that these heuristics have limits. So when you interact with someone that you know very little about and say you rely on a stereotype about her race or her sexual orientation, something like that, um, that really what that is, is that's just sort of exposing the boundaries or the limitations of those heuristics. Or am I missing something there entirely? I think it's possible in those contexts that the, it could be that the heuristic has something like, uh, is picking up on something in the real world. You know, that we've formed it through uh, because we've learned something from our, uh, from our social environment. And in, and so to the extent that whatever it is that that heuristic has picked up on and is a reflection of is sort of real and true, then that heuristic is going to be a kind of reliable uh, tool for us to use, um, at, especially in conditions where we need to kind of make efficient judgments. So I'll give you an example is say that uh, you say that you're inter you find yourself interacting with a person who's from another social group that maybe uh, you have like hostile 
relationships with. So, so you know, imagine that uh, you're at war with uh, you're at war, and you encounter someone who is from the other side of the war, and you don't know this person very well. They're not a part of your social group. You're not going to cooperate with them. Uh, and so, but you still have to kind of predict and interpret their behavior. And so in this case, the fact is that because of the kind of social relationship you stand, uh, you, that you're standing in with this person, uh, it actually is going to make a lot of sense to expect that they're going to have hostile, harmful intentions towards you. And so to the extent that you sort of think, oh, people on the other side are jerks or they're evil or they're monstrous, that actually is going to be a pretty adaptive heuristic in terms of interpreting their behavior. But note that there are two ways of understanding why a person might be uh, might have hostile intentions towards you. It might be because of some intrinsic or essential property of what they're like, like that they're bad people. Or it could just be that they just happen to be people who are uh, part of another group that you're currently in conflict with. And so you can see how on the one hand, you can accurately predict that they're going to be hostile. But if you, but you might inaccurately come to believe that the reason that they're hostile is because they're bad people, is because there's something inherently evil about them or that they have vicious character traits. When in fact, it's really just uh, their actions towards you are re really a function of the broader social context. That's an example where you can have a kind of stereotypical judgment about a person that is accurate in the sense that it will afford a certain, uh, a certain kind of reliable prediction, but it's based on a kind of false or mistaken belief about what, what the source of those predictions are. And so I think that that might be true of a lot of our other kinds of stereotypes, is that maybe the reason that people uh, behave in ways that are consistent with stereotypes is not because the stereotype is true, but because of some broader features of the social context uh, uh, that make people behave that way. And so this is sort of the limitation of stereotypes is, uh, uh, and heuristics and biases is they can provide accuracy but, uh, or a certain degree of reliability, but they're kind of, they're, they're very coarse grained information. And they're not really going to tell, uh, give you a deeper understanding of why people are behaving the way that they're doing or why things are happening the way they are. Does that make sense? No, yeah, it does. Um, and for, for people who don't know, heuristics are just like rules of thumb, um, things that you use that are sort of quick and dirty to help you in a pinch. Um, so if you're at the grocery store and you're looking for like chili, and you don't know how good the store brand chili is, you're buying pre-made chili, you might go with a name brand as a heuristic because you think, well, I like the name brand, They're, they've got pretty good chili. Uh, I don't know for sure, but um, it, maybe, the, maybe the store brand chili is better. But like, yeah, so like quick and dirty rolls that help us sort of make decisions in, the, in, in snap situations where you don't have the resources and time to sort of sit around and think about the pros and cons in detail. Um, and you want a fair degree of efficiency, but also a fair degree of accuracy. Um, but speaking of stereotypes and biases, um, you work in 
um, social cognition and interacting with others. And in my old age, I've more and more come to the conclusion that your quality of life, happiness, and those sorts of things are largely um, tied up with your relationships with other people, your family, your friends, colleagues, neighbors, um, how you interact with folks is a big part of, of most people's, I think, happiness and quality of life. So I'm, I'm asking you very roughly or very broadly, is there anything in your research or things that you've worked on that might sort of illuminate ways to improve our relationships with other people, whether it's close and intimate relationships with like loved ones and family members or folks we work with, next door neighbors, people we don't know quite as well. Um, could you speak to that a little bit? You know, I'm not sure if I can, uh, if my research really tells us how we can improve. Because I think that before we can learn how to improve our relationships and our everyday interactions, we need to understand how they work. We need to understand what are the sort of underlying psychological and social dynamics that make these relationships happen and that, uh, and that explain them. And it's only once we've done that initial work of sort of properly explaining and describing uh, the dynamics of social cognition that we can start to take away, uh, take away those kinds of lessons. And it's really complicated to do that. And I don't know that we're there yet with my, uh, when it comes to mind reading or with social cognition more generally. Uh, but here at least is my gut feeling on the situation. We talked about gut, uh, gut feelings before, and so I'm gonna go with mine now. And I think what all this shows is that uh, empathy is one of the most important virtues out there because it's a cornerstone of how we relate to each other and how we can learn to relate to each other in a healthier way. And so to the extent that you can sort of maintain a, an ongoing standing motivation to take other people's perspectives and to empathize with them and to consciously think about what is the world like from their perspective and to remember that their minds are complicated, that they do have, uh, that they have had lots of experiences that might be different from yours and that they might have had lots of experiences that are similar to yours. And if you make an effort to think about that, that your relationships with these people will improve, you'll have uh, a richer social interactions and maybe you'll be able to get closer to people. Now that's not a conclusion that's unique to uh, uniquely coming out of my work, but it's something that my work continues to confirm for me. And then maybe one other lesson I take that is not really a lesson from day-to-day -day life, uh, day -day life so much as a lesson when you're engaging with uh, psycho uh, psychology and with philosophy uh, is just this lesson about uh, remembering that just because people, there's evidence that people make mistakes in certain contexts, uh, that evidence of bias and evidence of error is not going to mean that people are unreliable or making errors across the board. And that we should be careful not to overinterpret uh, 
the evidence that people might make all kinds of funny mistakes and leap to a kind of skepticism. And because actually there's a lot of stuff in the blank spaces there that haven't been filled in that I think are going to be much more closely aligned with common sense than uh, the really eye-catching studies in psychology might have us believe. You know, and adding to that point, and adding to your point about empathy, um, you might think that there's room here for something like the benefit of the doubt. So going and touching a bit on our discussion earlier about um, sort of approaching things or framing things in optimistic terms when you're sort of in the middle of a choice you've made, when you're facing things you can't control, constraints that you can't change, um, and also that sometimes you're going to make snap judgments about people that aren't perhaps very good or very charitable, that within that sort of optimism and that uh, empathy, um, you might work with something like um, giving someone the benefit of the doubt. Like if you don't know why someone's motivated to do what they do or why they said what they said, said, that not only will it probably improve your relationships, um, you know, all else being equal, um, to give them the benefit of the doubt and to try and put yourself in their position, um, but it also might be better for you too. So for your own psychological well-being, right? Um, you might think like, it's probably better to give someone the benefit of the doubt if you can, uh, just because it's really, really psychologically taxing to have lots of people on your shit list. Um, it's, um, and it, it maybe will facilitate, um, if there's room for doubt, you know, granting someone the benefit of the doubt might facilitate um, empathy, right? So if you think, well, I don't know why this person said or did what they did, right? And I, people are complicated sometimes. It's not always clear. Um, this is something that I think a lot about when I think about moral philosophy. Um, there's, a, there's an age-old question in moral philosophy. Why do the right thing when no one's looking, right? Like, why do the right thing if you can get away? Why be good when you can get away with being bad, right? And one of, an answer to this question, I think really dovetails nicely with this discussion is that, well, if you do something bad, you'll know. And if you have a conscience, it'll probably bug you. But also because sometimes doing the right thing just feels good. It's affirming. There's something about it that's positive. Um, but it seems like it seems like the benefit of the doubt thing is it would be really, really useful for things like empathy. Am I, am I wrong, Evan? What do you think? I think you're absolutely right. And... It's just to sort of add to that a bit. Um, sometimes we can have bad habits of mind reading uh, that will really damage our social interactions. So, uh, what? Here's an example that comes from sort of clinical uh, clinical psychology literature on uh, borderline personality disorder. Uh, so, people with borderline personality disorder uh, sometimes display some very peculiar pattern, or not peculiar, but sort of damaging patterns of mind reading. And this can uh, really negatively uh, affect the kinds of relationships that they have with people because uh, they will tend to expect that people are doing things out of hostile intentions or that people are, that people don't like them and that the reason people are acting towards them is because they're, they're being manipulative or they're lying or that they're not trustworthy. And so 
this sort of frame influences how you uh, how someone with borderline personality disorder can interpret uh, other people's behavior, and it leads them to sort of react in their own hostile ways because they think that other people are out to get them or that other people are going to betray them. And so, one of the kinds of therapies that is, that is recommended for people with this disorder is to get them to consciously reflect on what's going on in other people's minds and to sort of be aware that this isn't the case all the time. And I think that like, that's, that's something that happened, that's from a clinical context, but I think that it, you know, it happens on a spectrum and it can happen for us in day-to-day -day lives. Because if you think that, uh, if you view people through a kind of characterized lens where you assume that their intentions are, uh, are the, are simple and nasty, or you assume that, uh, or you assume that other people are simple, and then that might lead you to give less charitable interpretations of their behavior, and that's going to negatively affect your relationships. And so, just uh, just being more reflective about in your perspective taking can go a long way towards making your interactions more positive. So in the spirit of making my interactions more positive, uh, it's been great having you on the show, Evan. I really appreciate you coming on and thank you for illuminating us in a variety of topics. And if you can read minds, then you know that I already think these things. I did know that. Thanks, Jimmy. <laughs>